One second. One second. Matt, you ready? I am ready. Let's go, Josh. I'm waiting on you to stop drinking out of a straw (laughs) in the microphone. Okay. This is Josh Patterson. I'm joined today with Matt Chandler. In our episode, we'll be discussing the presidential election with author and pastor Thabiti Anabuile. Then we're going to jump into Ask TVC to answer some recent questions from our listeners. We want to welcome onto the show Thabiti Anabwile, who is a senior pastor at Anacostia River Church in Washington, D.C. Thabiti is also the author of several books, including The Life of God and the Soul of the Church, The Gospel for Muslims, What is a Healthy Church Member, The Decline of African-American Theology, and The Faithful Preacher. Thabiti also blogs regularly at the Front Porch and Pure Church. Thabiti, thanks for being on the show. Oh, it's a privilege to be on, brother. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're glad to have you. We're just going to jump right into it and just kind of talk about this idea of endorsements and the lesser of two evils as we're looking towards uh, this this election. And and it's no secret that this election has been tense. Uh, the uh, The entire cycle all the way through the primaries up to where we find ourselves now has just been somewhat of a circus and somewhat of a challenge. It's created dilemmas for Christians. It's created dilemmas for non-Christians. It's it's just kind of an interesting season, I think, that we all find ourselves in. Yeah. So we're trying to look through this with a Christian lens, with a Christian worldview, and want to talk about this this idea that has come up recently of endorsements and the lesser of two evils. And so as, as, as you kind of think about that as the broad topic here, um, what does it mean to take the approach of voting for the lesser of two evils? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Is that a fair thing? How do we understand that? Well, in, in my own thinking, brother, um, we're, we're always in that position. Yeah. Right? Uh, we're always in the position of voting for one center or another. Um, and, and yet there's a distinction to be made between uh, the way in which we use that phrase you know, as hyperbole, uh, the lesser of two evils, not really being stone-faced, serious about, you know, the alternatives being evil. Uh, And what I think of this election, which is, I do think, in terms of the two major um, presidential candidates, we're looking at two persons who, in my own view personally, uh, do represent in their their rhetoric, in their positions, in their policies, in their histories, uh, in their personal lives, uh, really significant evil options if we're viewing this biblically. Um, and so I'm not sure that in this election, frankly, we are sort of voting for the lesser of two evils as if one was clearly lesser compared to the other. Uh, I actually think we have to take seriously uh, the fact that we're looking at two options that even if you're just viewing them independent of the other, I think you sort of bottom line them as um, unrighteous um, sort of options if, if you're a Christian. Uh, and so that puts us in a position of, of Isaiah 520, um, refusing to call evil good and good evil. You know, the Bible pronounces a woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So I just have, we have to look at it and say, okay, it's evil, it's dark, it's bitter, now what? Right? Now, it, with that kind of framing, I think actually whatever you do on some level is the, the lesser of, of evils, if you're acting according to conscience. Uh, so even if you abstain on principle, you're viewing that as a, as a, less, as a, as a better option than voting yeah. for evil. Um, and so 
whether you abstain, whether you write in, whether you go third party, whether you vote for one of the major candidates, I think you are effectively in the same position. And what you're trying to do is work out your salvation in fear and trembling. What you're trying to do is work out your own discipleship um, with the Word of God open, we pray, and with your conscience bound by the Word of God, um, choosing what you think is the, the best option available. Um, and I think, if you, again, if you set aside some kind of principal objection to voting at all, which really had been my position up until this election for the last three elections or so, if you set that aside, then you're in this inescapable position of some form of lesser of evils and some form of consequentialist um, right. kind of decision-making. Now, you, you don't believe, or at least, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, but you don't believe that a vote has to be viewed as an endorsement or an affirmation of an individual. Can you unpack that? If I'm right, I believe you, you wrote that somewhere. Yep. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, and in fact, if we're going to view votes as endorsements, then as Christians, we're in all kind of trouble. Um, you know, the, the only way to escape that is then to never vote, because um, we do lots of things that um, wind up supporting other things that we would never, if we were looking at those other things, we would never do. So, for example, uh, every Christian should pay their taxes. Jesus tells us to, right? Give the Caesar what is Caesar's. And yet our tax money gets spent on things that, uh, as individual Christians, uh, we, we would never support. So when you ask yourself the question, was my paying taxes an endorsement of all of Caesar's agenda? Well, the yeah. obvious answer to that is no. Uh, and the same is true in voting. When you vote for a person, um, unless you're really deluded, uh, you, you should not be understanding that vote to be an endorsement of that entire person and everything that they believe and everything that they do. We can only do that with Jesus. Um, and so the question is, is can you use your vote in a way that's more scalpel-like um, than shotgun-like? Can you use your vote in a way that comes down to a set of issues um, or a set of trade-offs that aren't perfect, they have pros and cons to it, um, but that are meant at least, intended at least, um, to aim at something particular that you can support Okay, if you're, or, if, or oppose? If, if we're talking about, by the way, I love the imagery of scalpel versus shotgun, but if we're talking lesser of two evils, can we, can we try to flesh out a little bit about, I mean, is that, a, is that a list of things that we're now looking at this candidate versus this candidate? So I'm not trying to lead directly into single issue voting, but, mm-hmm. but what are the what are the markers it's of kind of like how do you how do you wait yeah how, what is how do you maybe not single issue but weighted voting this issue mm-hmm. weighs more than this issue and i'm stacking them up against each other and the relative seesaw means i'm going this way rather than that way yeah and this is where i think individual christian conscience understanding that well and how it operates is critical because a lot of what I think I see in the social media back and forth, blogs, tweets, da, 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 and particularly some of the, the more histrionic stuff, seems to me to be people who clearly don't understand the sort of liberty of conscience yeah. and uh, are attempting to bind someone else's conscience to their own. So I've had a lot of people say to me, abortion, that, that's it. Beginning, in discussion, Hillary's wrong on abortion. I don't even know if you're a Christian. If, if you if you countenance the idea of voting for Hillary Clinton, now at that point what they're what they're attempting to do is to buy my conscience to their own, right? Yeah. And so when I reply and say, "Oh no, I care about abortion, and that's a major issue," but I also care about racism and sexism, and and I list my sort of list of sure. other things that to me are are major issues. 
um, then, you know, a person who would want to disallow that is trying to bind my conscience in a way that the Bible doesn't. So in answer to your question, there is no sort of short answer rule for which things matter most um, for all Christians, except that the Bible defines that, right? And when we look into the scriptures, we, we don't find places in the scripture where we're told we have to care more for racism, for example, than we do about sex trafficking or more about sex trafficking than we do about abortion. Now, one can make their argument for the relative merits of, of one or the other. So one could talk about the scale of abortion, for example, um, and say just you know on the basis of scale, yeah. this is worse than, say, racism. But, you know, I'd, I'd want to say, actually, that's an interesting point to consider, but let's think about racism and the costs, plural, of racism. Employment, housing discrimination, uh, mental health costs, physical health costs. The, these things aren't as easily calculable as, say, abortion. But I can well understand why someone who has felt the brunt of that might say, in good conscience, I don't know that I can make abortion bigger in that sense than yeah. racism. These, these equally feel weighty to me. And so there, you know, here's why I want to recommend Andy Nacelli's book, um, Conscience. It's just a great biblical study. Uh, of of the conscience, how it operates, and and I like the last two chapters in particular because they're trying to help the church preserve unity, where Christians of of good faith uh, differ in matters of conscience, right? Uh, and so uh, that that that's that question you ask about how do you decide what's weightier, really is a question that has to come of down conscience. to a lot of factors and to individual conscience. And and that's not to say that everybody's right. Um, so I may see some things incorrectly or partially, uh, and my conscience needs to be better shaped to the Word of God. Um, but it is the Word of God that binds the conscience alone. And, and for me, that's kind of missing in a lot of the Christian discourse. Well, and I think that's what's, what's really interesting. It, even as you talked about conscience, it, this could be the ace of spades that somebody could throw down that you could never get around. Right? It's just, well, my conscience says this, my conscience says that. So our conscience being formed and informed, shaped and reshaped by the Word of God, obviously uh, is primary in all of this. And so as we're kind of deciphering and distilling and better understanding the heart of God as it relates to the issue of life, uh, the issue of racism, the issue of um, – I mean, the Imago – it's amazing how far-reaching the consequences and the implications of the Imago Day really are. Yeah. And mm-hmm. – so with a Christian understanding around life and abortion, I, I think there would be an argument that would be made there. Most evangelicals, I think, would make that argument that life as it relates to abortion is coming from the heart of God. How would you respond to that? As, as they would say, this isn't just conscience. This is conscience informed by the scriptures. How would you respond to that? I wouldn't want to gainsay that. I sure. would just simply say, but that's not the only thing that comes from the heart of God. Agreed. That you love your neighbor comes from the heart of God. And failing to do that means you don't have a mark, an essential mark of Christian discipleship, that you love your enemy comes from the heart of God. There's, there are lots of things that God has a rather big heart, right? And I think we have, for the last 30, 40 years, been fed a pretty steady diet um, that abortion comes from the heart of God and been fed it in such a way has to suggest that nothing else really matters or nothing else is as big in God's heart as abortion. I don't know if that's true. Um, and I, I, would, I would tend to think 
that if that were true, uh, we would see more singular texts in the Scripture from God telling us uh, that that were the case. Now, that's going to sound like a lot to a lot of people, like like heresy. That's going to sound to, right. to a lot of people as if I'm minimizing abortion. I'm not. Uh, I'm trying to sort of suggest that actually the way we temper um, our intensity and our balance and all that stuff is with the Word. And so the second thing I want to say to that person was, well, take me to the Scripture. Show, show, me, show me where the Scripture informs your use of the language from the heart of God. Uh, and you're suggesting by that language that this is the, the uppermost thing in the mind of God. Right? Let's, let's walk through that in the Scripture. Um, and as we do that, we can walk through some other things as well that are in the Scripture that, that hopefully help us all to have a, a more well-informed conscience um, based on the Word of God. So, so even that language, I find, this is the heart of God, is freighted in a way that isn't really responsive to the whole counsel of God. It's freighted in a way that to suggest that this is the only thing that matters. And I think we're looking at a, uh, this election has exposed how that way of thinking has actually de-skilled the church in its ability to work through complex moral issues. Um, and so to boil the whole world down to single-issue voting or a single-issue voting approach uh, is not actually to respond to the world the way it really is. Uh, and I think we have a lot of Christians who now, having, having prized this issue so highly, and really having it taken away from them in this election. Let's be frank. Um, Mr. Trump is no pro-life champion. Uh, yeah. He doesn't have a platform that seems to me to be arguing the case that we want. And for me, that'd be a different discussion. If Mr. Trump, amidst all of his flaws, was saying, on day one, I'm going to sort of push forward legislation to overturn Roe. Okay, and he'd been, and he'd been serious on that and consistent on that? Okay, I actually have a different sort of calculus in this election. We actually, for the first time, have, have an outwardly, aggressively pro-choice candidate. Okay, now, I think that moves me to the other side of the ledger. But that's not what we're looking at, right? Yep. And so we, we're actually people, if, if we've been single-issue voters as evangelical Christians, we're actually looking at an election, another election, where there isn't a champion for us in this. Um, and, and for better or for worse, I think we're going to have to do the, the messier, more complex thinking about, well, then who do we support, given the, the sort of constellation of other issues that are also important. And some people are having to learn to think that way, to think through more complex things, uh, having been taught for, you know, however long, that there's only one issue to be checking the box on. So walk us through some of that complexity. If, if, if it's not a single issue, it's not the single issue of race, or it's not the single issue of abortion, if we could just kind of put those as, as two single issues that are out there. Walk us through the complexity and the weightiness of how we make a more robust, um, conscience-informed decision. What are the other, what are the other factors? And, and this, obviously, conscience has some semblance of personalness to it. Uh, and maybe you're letting us into your own personal conscience yeah. here a little bit, but help us appreciate the complexity so that we could see it. So that the idea, because it it is a bit of a jarring um, idea to think, man, abortion is not is not the single you know ace of spades issue. As you've talked about, we've been de-skilled in that. So so help us, coach us, talk us through how to think through this a little bit more um, robustly. Uh, I'll do the best I can. I don't know that I'm any, I should be uh, anybody's counselor here, but let, let me sort of start where um, you, you sort of made reference a moment ago to the image of God. I, I think that's, the Bible makes that foundational 
the reality that we are made in his likeness and image <clears throat> and that all of humanity bears immense dignity because of that. And uh, that's part of what forms the, the sanctity of life, if you want to use that phrase. Uh, when you look at the texts and the scripture that, that speak to that, um, that, that seem to, to rest the position squarely on top of the notion that we're made in God's image, it covers everything from capital punishment in Genesis chapter, what's that, 9, all the way down to James, to how we speak to each other. Yeah. Right? So this is, this is a doctrine that undergirds, you know, the, what we think of as ordinary commonplace behavior, our speech, to what we think of as extraordinary, um, you know, uh, dramatic behavior, capital punishment. Well, you say, well, how do you flesh that out as a Christian in the public square? Well, that has implications for how you think about poverty, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and, and how you think about the dignity of persons living in poverty, and I would argue whether or not you should render assistance to people in poverty. Now, as Christians, I think that should be settled. You know, First John tells us, you know, particularly inside the household of faith, how can you, you know, say you love your brother uh, and, and not meet their needs? Don't, don't love in word, but love in word and deed, right? Uh, I think that the Bible bends us in its emphasis on good works in a book like Titus and in its emphasis on love your neighbor. I think your Bible bends us in a certain certain direction uh, with regard to, um, you know, poverty relief. Now, they can look a million ways and tell us how it, it looks, but that puts, for example, poverty relief on the table uh, as an issue that Christians ought to care about. Um, the, the sort of dominion mandate back in Genesis you know, that, that puts how we steward the creation on the table. That, that, again, a thousand conversations to have after you sort of identify a topic uh, in terms of how that should look in terms of public policy or whether it should even be in public policy. But that it should be on the table, uh, I think the Scripture sets the terms for that. Um, let's take the example that we, the two examples that we use very explicitly in the Scripture with regard to the image of God, capital punishment, uh, and speech. Both of those have to be issues that Christians care about and, and think their way through. Um, clearly, God in the ordination of, of government is giving government the sword and giving them the right to exercise that sword in the form of capital punishment. Uh, but now when you look at something like the, the, the disproportionate conviction rates, the over-policing of certain communities and things of that sort, prudentially, I think we have to sort of say, hey, let, let's have a moratorium on the use of capital punishment until we know something about the biases or the fairness of our systems, and are honestly having that conversation. Uh, that's, a, that's a conversation that needs to be on the, on the table, criminal justice reform, um, free speech laws, religious liberty. If, if the image of God um, grants us the ability to, or, or it calls us to speak to one another in a particular, certain, in a particular way, uh, then I think it should be informing how we understand uh, the constitutional protections around freedom of speech, uh, religious liberty being one such freedom uh, or, or related freedom. You see, all those things kind of get on the table. If we care about the whole counsel of God, I think it's easier, brother, to sort of say, what issues should we not be addressing? Yeah. That is to say, which ones should we be addressing? So I, there... um, and, and so a Christian world and life view is this massive thing that, that peers down the hallway into many different kinds of issues, some of them connected, some of them disparate, um, but we want all of them informed by how we understand the Bible. So there, there's two questions kind of stirring in my mind. So I want to the, – the first is, you, you mentioned it. it. It feels to me that 
that really in any election, um, especially I, I think this one that – and maybe I'm just 42. It's the first time I can just feel the full weight of the election. But I, I think not. I think this is we're, – we're witnessing something quite different mm-hmm. here. The, the weight of religious liberty – um, I, I, I think that for me, and so now maybe I'm letting you into my conscience. I think the weight of religious liberty pushes and pulls on me as much as anything else does, just because I know what all's at stake, um, where religious liberty is either granted or rescinded. So can you talk a little bit about the weight of religious liberty as we consider this? And then the, the second question, uh, it's not closely tied to that, but it, in such a nasty mess that we're looking at, because I think you've just rightly said, we're, this is not hyperbole. This really is the lesser of two evils. Um, why not a, a third party or why not a write-in uh, candidate? Let, let me let me maybe take the second one first, real okay. quick. Um, I, I I would not make a principled argument. Well, I I don't know that I would want to argue strongly against a write-in on a third party. Um, I think here is where a, a kind of pragmatism is evident in my own thinking, and that is for for, gosh, you know, in American politics, third-party write-in is largely symbolic. Uh, and and that's fine. It's important symbolism. Um, you, you're you're uh, you're making a statement in that in that vote. I don't want to belittle that at all. Um, but I think for me, why not a write-in or a third party? Is unless a write-in candidate or a third party candidate emerges with the potential of toppling both of the the sort of major party candidates, uh, I'm kind of interested then in. Um, Sort of slowing the the um, the erosion, the devastation caused by one of these two. Yeah. Right. Um, and for me, the, the the candidate who is least predictable, most dangerous, uh, is is Mr. Trump. That, that's my personal assessment. Uh, Hillary Clinton, for whatever for whatever she is, is a conventional politician. She's predictable. We've been running defense against the Clintons for twenty, thirty years. Right. I, we know how to play that game. Trump is an altogether different game. It isn't clear to me that he's responsive to any counselor. Um, it isn't clear to me that he understands American government at, at the most basic level. Um, he, has, he has sort of um, spotted some things that, in fact, are, are contrary to <laughs> the best of American, American government, from you know, committing war crimes against our enemies to uh, threats against uh, the press and the freedom of speech and curtailing that. Um, these are fundamental American constitutional democratic kinds of issues, um, and and if I like, it, I'm a conservative. So if if I say, okay, I'm going to line up as a conservative behind Trump and behind that madness, we we don't have any defense against Mr. Trump. So I'm I'm sort of in this position where I go, it's fine to vote for a third party candidate or write-in candidate. You know, I I don't have any ill feelings toward anybody who does that. But I think I'd like to see Ms. Clinton elected. If, if, if it's between Clinton and Trump, I'd like to see Ms. Clinton elected because I know how to play defense against her. Yeah. I, I can play that game. We've played that game for a long time. Uh, and I think you know Trump burns down a GOP, and, and I, I think it's bad on a million levels. Now, other people may see it differently, and I, and I respect So there's a, there's a lot that goes into that thinking for you because if you don't have the idea of endorsement, a vote is not an endorsement. Um, uh, then 
then you wind up in a really interesting place. And, um, and I, I can't wind up where you did. Uh, and I'm, I don't know where I'm going to wind up. I, I, I really feel orphaned in some sense. Um, well, but that, I, yeah. And I, and beneath all of this is a certain feeling of being orphaned, brother. So I, I share that with you. Yeah. I, I don't. Neither of the parties are home for me. Right. Uh, there, there are places where I've been right. There are places where I've been left. Sure. Um, and so neither of the parties are home for me. And if there were a movement, a concerted movement, to build a third party uh, with viable national and local uh, kinds of uh, potential, I'd be, I'd be on that bandwagon in a minute. Uh, in a minute. But in terms of the the narrower question of this election in November. Um, this is this is kind of where I land. Uh, but you asked a, Matt. You asked a question previous to that. Um, you want to want to rephrase that or restate that for me? Yeah. So the the first was just the weight of religious liberty right. and and right. the weight we should give religious liberty. I, I just in my own conscience, as I've thought through, like the sheer weight of religious liberty for me bears uh, a lot into shaping and and molding. Um, kind of how I'm perceiving and how I'm looking at this election in regards to um, what happens if um, what, what happens if religious liberty is and not just for the Christian right for all of our oh my gosh it's the end of the world we're you know Jesus is going to return anytime we got to get out of here because because man we're about to like I to watch the rhetoric around Muslims and to you know that that. The, the weight of religious liberty. Can you talk a little bit about the weight of that as we consider this election? Yeah, I actually think that religious liberty um, is one of the, the most basic uh, human rights um, available, that, that people ought to be free to worship God according to the dictates of their conscience. And, and I'm not sort of, as you just pointed out a moment, just a moment ago, I'm not saying that that should only be true of Christians. I think that should be true of humanity, as, as humanity. We were made to worship. Um, we, we cannot not worship. Um, and the, conter- the curtailing of worship um, seems to me to be a, a, a fairly um, violent imposition on a basic human right. Uh, and so it's no mistake that Christians have, have, in this country at least, have championed that right, um, not only for themselves but, but for everyone. And so we should be doing what we can to protect um, the, the free expression of, of religious uh, sentiment, religious commitment um, for, for all the citizens in this country, Christian, Muslim, Jew, Hindu, Buddhist, you know, run down the list. Um, the, and so that should be weighing pretty heavily on the conscience, and it should be factoring into uh, how people use their votes uh, in, this, in this election. Having said that, I think the thing in my own in my own heart, which may be a little bit different from you, Matt, um, is I think we the, the scripture is telling us that as we progress closer to the day of Christ's coming, uh, we will see less and less such freedom. That, that means we shouldn't fight for it. Um, it. It is to say that there's something about being a Christian uh, and worshiping Christ that is fundamentally independent of whether or not that's a protected right in the country. Uh, I know you know that as well. So the, our, our, the first Christians are in Rome. They don't. They don't have that right. There's some persecution. It's not pretty. We, we're not glamorizing persecution. We're not acting as if, oh, you know, let persecution come and the church will be purified. Well, yeah, the, pers- the church will be murdered and slaughtered too. Yeah, you say uh, that before you've ridden that train. 
That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So we should be fighting, you know, tooth and nail for the preservation of that freedom um, for for everyone, and it should be major on our minds. Um, and and yet we should also be fighting, recognizing that, um, you know, Christ is Lord, and and we are going to serve Him, uh, come what may. Let me just wrap up by saying this. One of the things, and we've been friends for a long time. I I think. Where we agree and where we disagree, I think the things I've always just appreciated about you, brother, is, man, you're, you're never saying anything off the cuff. Man, you are thoughtful and well thought out and well informed. Uh, and so I'm grateful to God for you, brother, and your voice, not just on this subject, but on a hundred different other subjects. And so glad to be your friend and glad to um, just reap from the way you think and the way you consider, which it, it comes from a different position than the one I'm in, but I, it, it's always so helpful for me to hear from you and to hear you talk about all sorts of different issues, brother. So thank you for being on today and, um, and just so value you as yeah, a brother thanks for being on the show uh, and as a friend. Uh, brother, that feeling is mutual, man. I'm, I'm really grateful to God for the friendship he's given us and the ways in which he's allowed that to grow over these last several years. And, uh, the ways, quite frankly, brother, um, you have shepherded me um, from a distance even, and, and the ways I've been able to learn watching you lead and love people, uh, and those things so evidently go together in you, brother, both both the leadership gifting but also a profound love for people. Um, and uh, that's expressed in a million ways, and uh, I'm grateful to God uh, for you and his, for his work through you, and uh, it's a privilege to be uh, on the show, man. I pray the Lord prospers what you guys do with your podcast. All right. Thank you, brother. You be blessed. All right. You guys too, man. Uh-huh. Thanks. All right, God bless. All right. Now Matt and I are going to work through some Ask TVC questions. These questions were submitted by uh, different men and women and want to uh, do our best to kind of have a little bit of a conversation around those. So the first one's from uh, Kevin Oliva, and Kevin asks us, what signs in our culture, if there's any, show that we're getting closer to the second coming of Christ? Any signs in our culture to the point that we're getting closer? Yeah, so I think that <laughs> I, I, we talk about this often, or I'll sometimes just point it out. Really, every generation in its prime has thought that this is the time, and at any moment now, he could come through the clouds. And, and so I'm yes and amen to Maranatha and to keeping our... Uh, eyes on the return of Christ. We don't want to be like, if we think of the parables of Jesus, we don't want to be like those who are not prepared for the return of Christ. And and yet, simultaneously, I, I think that you can you can say that, hey man, it could be another thousand years. You know, we just yeah, we just don't know. And so you can you can do the thing where you dive into how many earthquakes have occurred in the last twenty years as opposed to the previous five hundred, or you know, look at wars and rumors of wars and these kind of vague things we see in the texts of scripture. And I don't know that that's going to make you land on. Oh yeah, yeah, we're in the last days because I think if you just consider what the New Testament teaches, we certainly are. the The Bible is going to say the last days are the post-ascension days, right? That Christ has come, he has died for our sins, he has resurrected, he has ascended, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. So we are in the last days. So that's how I would answer that. Yeah, I think the sign is this, that we're closer today than we were yesterday. So the clock is still ticking. Uh, But it is tough, man, to be looking at uh, earthquakes and rumors of wars because those things have been here for a long time. And 
And I think the cry of our hearts should be, come Lord Jesus, just like they have been for centuries. And so uh, there's a lot in that question, uh, but I'm, I, I'd feel less confident looking at specific signs and knowing, yeah, and yeah this is I'm, the way. I'm not against of course not. eschatology and digging into not. these things as much as I would hope that our minds and hearts are hungry to see men and women come to know and love Jesus and to be busy uh, at work on mission uh, for the glory of God's name and fame and then pray him and fast him home. Yeah, have a steadfast, resounding yeah. hope uh, that fuels us for the fight. Okay, so this question comes from Blake Aldridge. Blake writes this, is it sinful to vote for someone like Trump? Is it sinful? Oh, that's mine. That's you. Oh, well, we can talk okay. about it. Yeah, I love, Let's I love do this, this together. Um, so I'm going to go Will short you be answer. sinning when you vote for Trump? <laughs> First of all. <laughs> okay. Um, let me let me give straight answer and yeah. then we'll unpack it. No, I do not believe it would be sinful to vote for either candidate. Um, and so I, I want to flesh that out a little bit. I, I think probably what would be sinful or could be sinful is just kind of a blind allegiance to either candidate right now. Agreed. Um, so, but for a guy who who really has wrestled, so I think there should be tension regardless of which way you go come November. So you can abstain, I guess. That you know, there's plenty being written on that. You, you've got all these options, but for someone who's going to vote for one of these two candidates. I, I think there should be some tension there and, and that you should have thought through um, why you're voting for who you're voting for. And so I, I've got no problem with someone going either way as long as they've wrestled with conscience, with the scriptures, and have landed in a spot. Now, I might disagree with them, might right. wholeheartedly disagree with them, but but I don't know that you can call that sin. It might be foolishness, but I don't know that you can call it sin. Yeah, I agree with you there. and. Thinking about going back to conscience and thinking what is actually sinful is to vote against your conscience. Yeah. And so, you know, the scriptures talk about if we don't do these things by faith, or vote, if not voting, but if we're going against our own conscience, and that we're stepping into that space of sin. And um, so the challenge, and there's a myriad of challenges with this particular election, um, but I think what has been revealed is for the Christian, there should always be attention. Yeah. There should have been attention four years ago and eight years ago and 12 years ago because there is not an ideal candidate. And there's not there's not one who is coming in uh, that has all the right answers, all the right values, all the right policies, all the right uh, character traits and all of these types of things. And so we're recognizing that we're voting um, – uh, yeah, we're voting for a flawed person. Yeah. And um, and so that tension should be present in in every election. Now this one it's amplified uh, for right reasons and good reasons. But I agree with you, Matt. I, I don't think it's sinful to vote for either one, even though I I would vehemently disagree with people um, about how they're going to vote and who they're going to vote for. Just like other people are going to vehemently disagree sure. with me, but I, I don't know that I'm I, ready. Like I, I can't go with you to the Hillary campaign, so I'm, I really? just can't join you there. I love you, and I'm for you. That's a shot back at me like, for yeah, the Trump. It is. Yeah. You're my brother yeah. and one of my dearest friends, but just I'm just not. On the record, I'm not voting for her. <laughs> so let me or, ask you. Or him. Let me ask you. Oh, an abstainer. Let me I ask don't know you what I, a I don't, question. I'm, I'm conflicted, well, but I'm not going either one of those The good news is time. you've got you know, a couple of weeks to figure yeah, it out. I'll figure it out. So let me ask you a question. Since okay. you're, so this is from Maggie Pearson, and she wants to know what you would say to marrieds who prefer committing to discipleship outside the home versus having children. So that's a very well-crafted question. 
Okay. So I don't think she wants to know what I would say. I think she, she probably more wants to know what you would say, but I'll answer this and see what you think about that. So thinking about married people who prefer committing to discipleship outside the home versus having children. Uh, I, I've talked with some of those folks. There's been some uh, couples at our church that that has been their conviction and their stance. And and I think what I would say, well, what I did say to them and what I would say to Mary or Maggie in this particular case would be, um, I don't know that there's anything wrong with that. Um, and I think I could go so far as to encourage that. But I but encourage it under the banner of this is not the normative yeah. Christian expectation or experience. Um, it's not that uh, to do this is to tread in in uh, foolish waters or sinful waters or anything like that, but it's just not the normative experience. You know, all throughout scriptures, really from the beginning in the book of Genesis, you've got the creation mandate that the expectation was to have children, to be fruitful and to multiply and to pass on uh, the works of the Lord to the next generation. So this, the normative pathway of discipleship starts in the home with children. And uh, you could see all through scriptures that where there were women who were barren, uh, that their longing and primary prayer was to have children. You think about Hannah and her yeah, prayer. Viewed as a blessing. Yeah. And and so so long as what's what's not being or not what's not happening here is is kind of a devaluing of children, uh, because that we see that trend happening in yeah. our culture, that children are devalued. They're seen as burdens, as in the way, as obstacles. Uh, to the good life, when in fact the scriptures would say um, quite, I think, to the contrary, as we look at kind of the full biblical picture, that the good life by and large is going to involve them. Children are a blessing from the Lord. They're a blessing from the Lord. They they add to life. Now, can they be challenging? Can they be exhausting? Not mine. Mine either. Um, And we're going to write that book. They don't bother me. Parent like us. Yeah, uh, that's going to be that should be a bestseller, um, but I I I I just want would want to kind of dig into that and and have a conversation pastorally, um, and there are some some men and women that I know that have not been able to have children. They did not want to go the adoption route for whatever reason, and their primary place of discipleship is outside the home. Yeah. Uh, and I would I would say praise the Lord for that. And um, but I would say the normative Christian experience here. Yeah. So I, I think the question was worded well yeah. in that it, there's a commitment to making disciples. So the decision not to have children isn't about resources or about her and her husband being able to go on this many vacations yeah. or have this kind Good of point. home or have yep. this kind of car. So because if, if that was the motivator, then I, I would have strong reservations about right. this. But the idea of I want to commit myself to making disciples with – Maybe this age group that I'm drawn to. So maybe we love college students. My husband and I love college students. We're going to dive into working with college students or or maybe we love elementary school or or whatever it is. But the the idea of we're going to make disciples outside of our homes is a great one. That's good. Hey, thanks for the conversation, Matt. Always enjoy the Ask TVC section and time just to dialogue about these things. It's good stuff. Now, if there's anything you heard us talk about today on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can always find those details on our website at thevillagechurch.net. Just look at the episode descriptions on our podcast show page. On our next episode, we're going to continue this conversation about presidential elections and politics with special guests Alan Noble and Michael Ware. If you have any questions, let us know on social media using the hashtag AskTVC. We'll see you next time. God bless. God bless.